So today we are so excited to bring you two stories in one episode. Two lumpy men, two different counties, two different decades, and two completely different stories with the same lingering question. Where are they? This is the Red Justice Project. Kent Jacobs was a 42-year-old Lumbee man living in the Hope Mills area of Cumberland County, North Carolina, when he went missing on March 10, 2002. Kent had intellectual disabilities that left him with the mental capacity of a child, so his disappearance shook his entire family and community on that dreadful Sunday in March. Before we get into details of his story, we'd like to share a little bit about who Kent was. He was the oldest of five children. His parents were Martha and Calvin Jack Jacobs. He was fiercely independent. He had a job and had a pretty structured routine. And just like any good old Lumbee man, he loved Harley Davidson. Kent also liked the Dallas Cowboys and was a Dale Earnhardt fan, which my husband will love when he is editing in this episode. He was deeply cared for and loved by his family, and as we continue with the episode, you'll just see evidence of that in his family's actions. So here's his brother, Keith, who I interviewed for the show, describing Kent. Kent had a, had a, a mental disability, you know, he was, he was developmentally disabled, um, you know, he never really passed the development of a, of a five-year-old, you know, about a five-year-old. So his world was colored by that completely. Um, he was a good man. You know, he was he was like the rest of us. He was he was a simple man in a complex world. And, but it never got to him in the sense that it gets to the rest of us, that it gets to people like me. You know, he never took it to heart. He could he could just uh, he could just let things. He just was so in the moment more than I've ever been, you know. It was the moment that was the most important thing to Ken. And I think that was just, you know, that was because of his of his childlike nature, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he was he was just a good man. He was he was always honest. When Ken said something or or expressed something, you know, it wasn't he wasn't attempting to to con you in any way, shape, or form. It's how he felt in the moment didn't really register that he was different than everybody it was just he was more like us um i thought he was a genius when when i was a kid (laughs) i really did he had a knack for just able to to, he could rig up things kind of easily um he once was able to rig this system where he could switch the light off using a belt and some other things and it, it was amazing to me Uh, But as you got older, it became more of a challenge. It became more of a challenge. As Chelsea mentioned, Kent had intellectual disabilities. So during the time of his disappearance in 2002, he was living in a group home in Fayetteville, North Carolina, that catered to adults with special needs and helped provide jobs for them. So Kent did work and earned his own money. Almost every single Friday, though, Kent's mama, Martha, would pick Kent up from his group home and bring him to their family home to spend the weekend with her. And that Sunday morning was just like any other Sunday morning. Martha woke up and got ready for church. She noted that Kent woke up and walked into the kitchen to peek in on her in the den. Kent had plans that Sunday to walk a couple of miles over to the old neighborhood where his family once lived, a place he was extremely familiar with and where many of his childhood acquaintances still lived. Dressed in his Harley-Davidson sweatshirt, jeans, and black sneakers, Kent set off on his walk with over $200 in his pocket. That was money from his last paycheck at his job. 
Kent's mother said that he loved $20 bills and she noticed that he had spread the bills from his paycheck on his bed and she normally would have asked him not to carry that much cash on him. And she's quoted in the Fayetteville Observer paper saying, For some reason on that Sunday, I didn't say anything to him about carrying that cash. She said, I finished getting ready for church and he finished his bath. He was sitting out there in my den when I left. And I don't know, I just didn't say anything to him. And Brittany, I'm sure she replays that last morning with Kent in the house just over and over in her head. Yeah, she probably does because a lot of the people that I've interviewed for past episodes, they always feel like they have some responsibility in what happened, even though, you know, these things are, are pretty much completely out of their control. Yeah, that's actually one thing that Keith mentioned when I was speaking to him about this um, episode. He said that his mama just blames herself for so much. And, you know, and Keith was like, Mama, you can't blame yourself. It's whoever did this to Kent. That's who we need to blame. And, And it's true. I mean, none of the blame can be held on her. She could never have known what was about to happen to Kent. Yeah. So as part of his routine, as we mentioned, you know, Kent had a curfew and usually arrived home around 5 or 6 p.m. on Sunday evenings. And I'm assuming this curfew was probably in part for his safety and partly because, as we mentioned, he lived at a group home. So I'm sure his mama drove him back there each Sunday evening so he could prepare for work for the week. As Sunday afternoon turned into Sunday evening, Martha began to worry about Kent's whereabouts. After speaking with her daughter, Jackie, she actually decided to call a family friend who is was in law enforcement at the time because, you know, he just hadn't arrived home yet. Once the sheriff's department was notified, the search for Kent actually took off immediately. There were numerous searches in the area where Kent lived and the area where he was supposedly last visited that Sunday afternoon. Each person that saw Kent that afternoon did say that they saw him or spoke to him or that he visited their home, but no one would admit to being the last person to see Kent that day. And I could just only imagine how, you know, truly terrifying that must have been for Kent's family, but especially his mama. Oh, definitely. I think when you have a missing persons case where the person, you know, has a limited mental capacity, it just heightens everything, too. And also, in some ways, I think having a family who really understood how to garner support and the fact that this happened in Cumberland County, just one county over from Robison, where so many of our cases have have taken place, really helped the family with the initial search efforts. I mean, they searched for Kent by helicopter, on foot, with tracking dogs, and the family even posted billboards in the area, posted flyers, and put a reward for information on Kent's disappearance. Yeah, I was telling Kent's brother during our interview that I actually could remember when I was younger seeing the billboard with Kent's face on it when we would head to Fayetteville. Do you remember seeing that, Brittany? Yeah, so I remember that very distinctly. Um, Me and my family, we would go to Fayetteville a lot on the weekends to go eat or to go shop, you know, just because Lumberton's so small and we don't have that many options. And so I remember seeing that billboard kind of right time you get off the highway and just seeing his face. Um, And so I've always uh, thought about this case and just wondered what happened. And the support from Kent's family also during this time was really astounding. So they even set up the Kent Jacobs Foundation to create a centralized place for folks to get information about Kent's case. So when you were interviewing Kent's brother, did you find out any specific details about the investigation or was any motive or persons of interest mentioned by them? 
So there were a few interesting things that I learned about the investigation from Keith and then from a quick conversation I had with Dennis Mahone, who's just a normal citizen like us who actually took an interest in the case and has now become very close to the entire Jacobs family. The first was just a reminder that Kent had that $200 on him, which, you know, to me, it's not enough to harm anyone over $200, but you know, that could have been motive for someone who was desperate to hurt him to get that money. And things could have just went horribly wrong if they were just trying to do like a simple robbery. And his brother Keith said that Kent was pretty generous with his money when it came to his friends, but definitely not with strangers. So here he is discussing that. He was generous. He would, he would definitely, if he had money on him and his friend asked him for money, he would definitely give it to him. It was actually a little bit of a source of putting him and my mom, you know, but it was his money. He earned it and he felt he had the right to. But, um, you know, it's just, there may have been other people involved who didn't know Kent as well. You know, there may have been more people involved who didn't know Kent as well and who just figured, I'm not going to ask him, I'm just going to take it. And now he would not tolerate that. Um, you know, we, we, we have a suspicion that maybe there was a struggle and something went wrong. And, and uh, we, we can't confirm any of this. This is all just based on our, our hunch. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like it, I mean, it could have been a robbery, I guess. But also, like you just said, it's just $200. But, I mean, if you have no money in your pocket and you have no way of getting any money, then $200 can also seem like a great deal of money to you. So I, I don't, I really don't know. But I mean, the only other motive I could truly think of besides robbery is just an attack on him by an evil person who knew about his intellectual disabilities. I mean, there's always a suspicion that it was a stranger and it's always hard when discussing these cases because we have I-95 that runs through our tribal territory and it is without a doubt the most traveled highway on the eastern seaboard. And we're talking about thousands upon thousands of strangers who drive through our homelands every single day. And it just makes it so hard to know if somebody, you know, picked him up or if they were just driving through and saw him and then maybe kind of got off and got on I-95 immediately um, and kind of used the highway to take him away and harm him. Although I don't really think that's the case in this situation, but it's, it's still possible. So I definitely think someone knows something in the neighborhood where he was last seen walking because so many people saw him that day. There's no way that, you know, someone doesn't know something. Either way, years passed without the family ever making any real breaks in the case. Then, in 2009, Detective Faith Trogdon of the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office gets heavily involved in the case. With a fresh set of eyes, she identified a lead that had not been fully investigated. So, Brittany, I'm going to have you read a section of the affidavit that went along with the search warrant for a piece of property that was suspected to be where Kent's body was. It says, Kent Jacobs was last seen by Carl McCrimmon on Sunday afternoon, March 10, 2002, as he was going onto property owned by Clifton Jones off Hulon Street in Hope Mills, North Carolina. Subsequently, Clifton Jones admitted to Hank Harris that Kent Jacobs was in a refrigerator buried on his property. That it was known that Clifton Jones owned a backhoe and would bury items on his property using his backhoe. That there were several tips in that file that identified an area off Hulon Street in Brooklyn Circle as the location where Kent Jacobs was buried. Okay, and then this next sentence is the most important part of it all. The affidavit states that there is a probable cause to believe that a refrigerator containing the human remains of Kent Jacobs is buried on the property belonging to Gregory Jones. 
So for some context here that I learned from Dennis, during the time that Kemp was alive, Clifton Jones did own this piece of land and he had several kind of shabby trailers on it. And instead of taking his tenants trash off each week, he would just bring in his backhoe and dig a hole and have them throw all their trash in the ground and just cover it back up which is why it's probable there could even be a fridge or any other random appliance buried on the property i think dennis even mentioned there was even an old greyhound bus like partially (laughs) buried back there this seems like multiple environmental hazards going on all in one story i don't i don't know i don't understand this i guess Right, like that's like horrible for the environment is the first thing that I thought of. So anyway, at the time of this affidavit, Clifton had since passed and the property is currently owned by his son, Gregory Jones, which is why the search warrant has his name on it. And Dennis wanted us to make it clear that the family or sheriff's department do not believe Gregory has anything to do with Kent's disappearance. They just believe the piece of land may have Kent's remains or hold clues to his disappearance. So, in May of 2010, the search warrant is executed and the Sheriff's Department begins digging on the property, looking for this refrigerator. They only search about 60% of the property when they are stopped due to environmental concerns. So, the Sheriff's Department claimed that if they kept digging, it was going to become an environmental hazard area. I guess, you know, from all the trash that's left in the ground on the property, they said that they would need to contact the Environmental Protection Agency and go through some red tape to continue the search. Months pass and Detective Trogdon says that they can't get back on the property because of the environmental issues and they would need new evidence because, and I quote, everything she had was included in the initial search warrant. And I can't imagine how frustrating it was for the family to feel like they were just so close to getting an answer only to be left with, you know, 60% of the search done because it's like you always are going to wonder about that 40% that was not searched. So, by April 2011, almost a year after the initial search began and ended, Dennis actually reached out to Linda Culpepper at the Environmental Protection Agency in Raleigh, North Carolina, and Dennis Shackelford of the Department of Natural Resources in Fayetteville, North Carolina. What he learned was astounding. He found out that the Sheriff's Department had not even bothered to contact either office about the search warrant on Hulan Street property, and even if they had, they would not have interfered with an active criminal investigation. Which just, I mean, makes me mad. I feel like every time we record, I just get mad all over again, because it's, that's so ridiculous. Why would you lie to the family and say that you're not allowed to do it, and then lie again and say that you contacted them to get the special permissions, and then... In reality, you haven't even done that. Um, you know, so it just it just infuriates me because Kent is probably there. And, you know, this case could be at least semi-resolved or his family could at least get, you know, the resolution to know that they could bury his remains. But all this time later, the fridge still has not been dug up, which, again, is just so frustrating. And me and Chelsea are about to head down to Hulon Street with our shovels and our Harley coats out like let's go like i'm ready or if someone in the area has a backhoe let us know we'll get to work (laughs) so it's 2021 and that 11 year old search warrant has never been fully realized here's dennis recounting about the warrant as well so after about a year or two of total silence um i contacted the people at the epa directly and they told me that nobody from the sheriff's department ever contacted them and they said, besides, we would never interfere with, with the sheriff's department effort. So something's going on. I don't know what's happening. 
But the only thing I know for sure, Chelsea, is a, a judge signed the warrant, said go dig up that refrigerator, and they didn't do it. And there are so many more things that we could add to this case and discuss, but we encourage everyone to go to findkent.com. Dennis has tons of videos, a copy of the search warrant, and so much more information about the case than we could ever share on a short podcast episode. Once again, that is findkent.com. If you have any information about the disappearance of Kent Jacobs, please reach out to the Cumberland County Sheriff's Department. Kent has two brothers, two sisters, a mother, and a host of relatives who would at least like to bring his body back home to be properly buried. So Kent went missing on March 10th, and Kent's birthday is also this month on March 16th, and his family had him declared legally dead a few years ago, but if he were still alive today, he would have been 61 years old next week. So just as we're hoping for justice for Kent Jacobs, we're also hoping for justice for our next victim. And Chelsea, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about Terry? Yep. So Terry Lowry was only 19 years old when he was last seen walking near where he lived on McGurchin Road in Maxton, North Carolina in May 1995. For over 25 years, his family has still been wondering, what happened to Terry? So here is Terry's cousin, Chris, who we interviewed for this episode, telling us about who Terry was. He was a card. I mean, he, he would cut up. I mean, he liked to, you know, joke, play. Um, he loved girls. God knows. Um, especially, you know, he got into his teenage years. Um, but, and he was a little bit of a hothead, too. I mean, he had a quick temper. And he got it on his, from his daddy. But, um, but I mean, you know, like I said, I was his cousin. So me and him always got along great, so. And it seems like Terry was your typical young lumby man of the 90s. He may have gotten into a little trouble here and there, but overall he was a pretty good guy. And like in Kent's case, Terry had made plans to walk to a friend's house that evening, and he also lived with his mother. At the time, Terry's truck was not working, so he had no way to get around except by walking. On the night of May 8, 1995, he never returned home. It wasn't unusual for him to be gone for a day. But once his mother realized that he had been gone a couple of days, she began to worry and called the police. The circumstances around his disappearance are all speculation, even to this day. Here is his cousin Chris again, speaking about the initial realization that he was missing, and then the initial search. Supposedly walking to a friend's house, and then, you know, next day he went home, and his mom, you know, went to calling around, trying to figure out, you know, where he was at. Then, you know, it was all with you know, He left here. I don't know where he went. And, you know, two or three days went by. And it weren't common for him, you know, to be gone for a day or two. I mean, I mean, he was grown. He was 19. But um, when he got, um, you know, three, four, five, six days, you know, he never did that. I mean, he wouldn't just stay gone like that for that long period of time. At least not without talking to his mother because that was her only child. And he was a bit of a mama's boy. So... I mean, he would always check in with her no matter what he was doing and where he was at. Yeah, when I was talking to his cousin Chris, it was kind of the same conversation, Brittany, that we've had with so many other families in Robinson County. There's so many rumors about what happened to their loved ones, but never any concrete evidence. I can't imagine how frustrating it must be to just not know. And here's Chris sharing some of those rumors they have heard about his cousin over the years. And remember, this is all speculation, and the family has no concrete evidence pointing to a certain person or a certain chain of events about what happened to Terry. 
you know, one of the rumors was he had stole either some money or some drugs from, I guess, one of the big wigs, you know, in the drug business. And they actually put a bounty on his head. And supposedly, you know, that's that's pretty much, that's why he was supposedly killed. Um, I've heard he was killed on purpose. You know, we've heard that it was actually an accident. That they were kind of pistol whipping him, you know, trying to get information out of where the money was at. And the gun went off and blew the back of his head off. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of, we've heard of the rumors that he was at somebody's house and um, him and the boy got into an argument or something and the guy hit him with a shovel. You know, I mean, so there's, I mean, there's all kind of rumors going around as how he was killed, um, who killed him, uh, how they disposed of his body. I mean, one of them was, you know, he was cut up and fed to a, a hog farm over there. And that's the thing about where we're from in Robinson County. The rumor mill is nonstop, y'all. And, you know, it's just so hard to know if something is true or not. And Chris said that Terry's mama took the disappearance of her son extremely hard, as you can only imagine. He was a mama's boy through and through, and his disappearance from McGirt Gen Road that night left a gaping hole in her heart, one she still has to deal with to this day. If you know anything about the disappearance of Terry Lowry in 1995, we encourage you to reach out to the State Bureau of Investigation. It has been over 25 years without a single credible lead or tip to figure out where Terry could possibly be. Thank you for listening. <laughs>